Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. That's the first mosaic I ever made in about 98, 99. So it's three hearts. Yeah, it's the alchemical symbol for unity, apparently. And at the time, it represented me, my, my first child, Poppy, wow. and my husband, James. But... That mosaic lasted longer than your relationships. So. <laughs> That's the great thing about art, yeah, it endures. Hello, today I'm joined by the artist Carrie Reichardt. Carrie is an artist who works in a variety of media, creating her designs on items as varied as car bonnets, plates and paint cans made of ceramic. She has worked in film, performance and sculpture. Carrie's website describes her output as anarchic artworks where vintage floral, kitsch, royal and religious crockery is given a new twist by refiring with layers of new ceramic decals. Carrie is perhaps best known for her mosaic home, which has become so well known over the 20 years that she's been decorating it that it has become a recommended stop for tourists making the trip to Chiswick, where Carrie lives. To record this episode of the podcast, I visited Carrie's home, which, as you can imagine, doesn't really need a door number because the house is immediately recognisable, standing out from the red brick buildings on the street thanks to its multicoloured mosaics of all sorts, including a Cheshire cat, flying eyeballs, dancing skeletons and palm trees covering the front of the house. The legend, I'm an artist, your rules don't apply, is displayed prominently. A bumper detail on the taxi parked in front of the house, also covered in mosaic, reads, Beware artists, they mix with all classes of society and are therefore the most dangerous. I first became aware of Carrie's work when I received one of her pieces as a Christmas gift. A plate which said, buy less, excuse the expletive here, fuck more. It was kitsch and yet anarchic. I was curious so I went to take a look at her mosaic house. Here's a woman with a story, I thought, so I asked her on the podcast. Carrie's answer to being invited on a podcast focusing on beauty was, I hardly have a ritual, I just wash off grout. That sealed it. I had to have her come on to tell her story and to explain how a woman with such a keen eye for adorning had never been seduced by beauty. We sat in her garden to record this, which is why you can hear cars, wind, her dog scratching around and the general bustle of London. I hope to you that adds to the picture, fleshing out what it's like to have sat in Carrie's garden and had a very frank conversation with a very frank woman. We talk about all sorts, from Dolly Parton to artist therapy, to how Princess Diana helped to destigmatize self-harm, to her friendship with a death row inmate. A little warning before you listen, as you may have guessed, Carrie isn't one for holding back and you might find some of the topics we discuss triggering. I loved having this conversation and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here's Carrie. I usually start in childhood with my guests and you grew up in this house. No. No, you grew up in Chiswick. I grew up in Chiswick. This was my parents' first house that they 
that had my two brothers in, but they moved and we actually, I grew up on Sutton Court Road. I grew up just around the corner within a mile of right. here. So yeah, I, w- I was always brought up in Chiswick. This is your childhood domain, as it were. Yes. Now, it being a beauty podcast, I said this to you before we started, um, but I emailed Carrie to say, you know, would you come on? And Carrie very kindly said yes. And then I said, you know, and we talk about beauty routines. And she said, well, I don't really have one, to be honest. But I wondered if in your childhood, whether those rituals, the routines, any kind of beauty elements were a factor and whether there was some visual element that was pleasing you as an artist. Was there anything that thrilled you? No, not at all. If I'm really honest, the thing is, is that I grew up in a house where my father ideal of beauty was Dolly Parton is it yeah Parton that was what he thought was beautiful he was also like into erotica and and imagery that I think as a child when I look back and I've done five years in therapy so I've considered a lot of this I think I rejected all of it from a very young age I found it all to be really kind of uncomfortable my mother wasn't someone who all I remember with my mother is that once every two weeks she'd get her hair set in rollers, which I never understood because you look great when you walk out and if you get your hair wet, it just destroys it. And I think from a very young age, I rejected the normal idea of beauty and was such a tomboy that I think I had a total rejection of all of that. Right. And so no element of it was seductive to you? I like dressing up. I okay. love wearing masks mm-hmm. and I liked face paint and I liked the idea of becoming something, someone else. Mm. But I didn't have a mother that applied makeup, so I was never taught anything. You know, I was never... I think in a way, I spent all of my time in the garden playing with bugs or drawing or I was very much, even at a very young age, I think I was would be now diagnosed things then we didn't have those diagnoses we were just slightly odd but my mum introduced me into colouring in books at a very young age which is funny now because they're all in vogue but I spent hours and hours and hours doing that and so I kind of got into my teenage years where you'd become influenced by all the peer pressure but the reality is I never knew how to put makeup on I still don't I've put some on today because I felt peer pressured in case you took a photo of me. And I do feel like, you know, I feel that pressure of like, oh God, if she takes a picture of me, I should at least have some kind of eyes. I think I found it really quite traumatic, the whole idea of it. I've always been that person who tried to get my friends to put my makeup on because I've never worn it as a daily practice and because it's something I do when I go out in the evening. I don't feel very comfortable in it either. I always felt more like Grace and Perry. Okay. You know, it feels like a costume. It didn't never f- settled well with me. And I think part of that is massive insecurity, not feeling attractive, not feeling pretty, really hating myself from a very young age. So part of it is that and part of it is the rejection of it. And I suppose then, having seen that sort of Dolly Parton, the boobs, the hair, the clothes, the makeup, if you're going in the opposite direction, all of that is connected to her and all those associations tarnished. Yeah, and it's funny because my father's now got Alzheimer's and I have to look after him two hours every three days. And all I do is I put Dolly on a loop and he watches the same documentary on Netflix over and over again and he looks at it and goes, look at her, isn't she beautiful? I said, she's probably not that beautiful when she's not got a wig and makeup on it in the morning. She's 70 and she's like, don't say that, don't say that, Carrie. She's beautiful, she's the ultimate woman and it's, it's quite funny because for years I struggled with all of that and now I find it quite funny. And when you were a teenager and your body's changing and there are signs that you're becoming a woman there, was that a difficult or traumatic experience for you? 
Yeah, I think like nearly everybody, as you develop breasts, they're not big enough or they're too big or they're the ones bigger than the others or everybody, uh, you know, we become acutely aware of it. And I think it's traumatising. I'd say that most of my friends did two things at puberty. They went over-sexualised or they went under-sexualised. I also think that weight is a massive way. I know that I always, I put weight on because I, in my head it makes me unattractive and there it desexualizes me, not consciously, but subconsciously. In fact, I did loads of work. My whole degree at college was about the whole idea of beauty. Yeah. And what was your degree on then? What were you doing? I did fine art yeah. and, I, and I did sculpture yeah. and I did a whole degree on body politics, really. Really? So tell me about when art came in then. At what age were you? Like I said, I think my mother introduced me to craft at a very young age. She learned how to knit when she was four in the under the subway during the air raids. Oh, wow. And she learned at four how to knit socks on four needles in the dark. Mum literally died knitting. I mean, and my mum at one point dedicated about four days of her life to going to John Lewis and teaching all the new people how to knit. Yeah. People who now write the books like Debbie Bliss or helping them. But she also knew that you sit around and you knit together or you mm-hmm. sew together and you communicate. And it's like, you know, the women's circle. So... I have that as a history. And so I think because my mother was passionate about her knitting, she'd just, like, sit me with my own colouring paper and, you know, she said she practised benign neglect, (laughs) which means that you kind of, within a certain parameters, you let kids go off and make their own mistakes. And I think that's a very war generation idea. So my parents also, well, my dad remembers the war, and both of them had the same thing where you would just let your children out i think psychologically as well my parents didn't have that they didn't think about you know isms you didn't have depression which was hard because i suffered a lot of mental health problems but my parents were the just get on with it attitude and so i think each generation in a sense is dealing with their parents generations and we were dealing with you know our parents, I don't know anyone who's elderly who isn't stacking things in their cupboards and is hoarding things and, and doesn't want to spend money that they have. When my mum died, we yeah. discovered she'd never thrown out a carrier bag. How many did she have? Just, there was, we opened the, the cupboard under the stairs and just an avalanche of carrier bags came out. Yeah. You know, I think because of the way she was, she let me be very creative in the yeah. sense that I know that I always had art materials. From as young as I can remember, my obsession was art equipment. I used to just ask for pencils and just play around with the order of the colour of the pencils. I didn't even draw with them. It's almost like an autism. I think that's how I emotionally coped with things. I would lose myself in a little world of colour and be really happy. And I have that now, even now, trauma or anything, the one place which is my happy spot is to go into my studio and lose myself in whatever I'm doing. When did the idea that maybe that should be something you studied and maybe that could be a profession come in? The thing is, is everything in my life has been a happy incident. You know, I didn't say I want to be an artist. That's not what happened. I left school with two O-levels, maths and English. Yeah. And I only got maths because I put C for the whole of multiple choice, you know. And so I was obsessed with fame and the closest I could find to a performance art course yep. was something called FIDAS at Hounslow Borough College mm-hmm. and it was films, English, drama and arts studies and it was a very bohemian, nutty course which just blew my mind because I'd been bored to death at school and then suddenly I'm in an environment 
where they're taking us and introducing us to the theatre of cruelty and Arto and like really out there ideas and films. I studied women in distress Hitchcock films for a year. Wow. You know, really like all Freudian things yeah. and sexual things. And, you know, at 16, this was all mind blowing. So I did this course and thought I'd do film. And, I, and somehow I flukily got into the Polytechnic of Central London. But I literally lasted six months. I discovered acid and dropped out. I couldn't cope. I couldn't cope with the theory side. Now I realise I'm probably dyslexic and I struggle so much with theory and English and academia. But then I just thought I was thick. I dropped out of that and I went travelling. I just I think I went to I went around America for six months and India and Nepal for mm-hmm. six weeks and came back and I thought I want to go back to art. Went to do an art foundation at Kingston Polytechnic, but in between coming back and going there I was sexually assaulted when I was walking down an alley and and I think that kind of traumatized me so much when I went to do my art foundation I just got locked into a form of art therapy that I had no idea that I was even engaged in at the end of your art foundation they get your portfolio and they go through it to help you get into college and when mine was put together every single thing had some sinister undertone of an attack it was all like literally someone doing art therapy for an entire year. And I made this film called Ode to Love, which was more like Ode to Violence. It was dark. I took it to Sheffield for my interview to do filmmaking. And they said to me, if they could, they would destroy the film. And they were surprised I was ever allowed to make it. And it was deep, deeply misogynistic and they thought it was awful. And even to this day, I don't know if they said it to elicit a response to see how I would argue or if they meant it. Now I look back and realise that I was emotionally incapable of of saying this is about my experience. I couldn't have articulated anything. I just presented something that literally ripped me to pieces and I was, you know, nearly suicidal coming back. And then they said, oh, go to Leeds, Leeds second choice. Because it was that time where you just went to your second choice. And I went to an interview there with this same tape... And they said, oh, we don't do film anymore. I said, what? They said, yeah, we gave it up two years ago. And I said, well, what do you do? And they said, we do painting, printing and sculpture. I said, well, give me a, give me a hammer and a chisel and I'll do bloody sculpture then. Okay. And this guy, Mick Sean, gave me a place, I think really because he just thought I'd wind up the other tutors. And so I just ended up on a degree. I had the most amazing space on the sixth floor. I had unlimited, we had materials. It was a time when you had technicians and you could go and ask them to make you a glass coffin, which they did. You know, it was an unbelievably amazing time to be doing a fine art course. But, you know, in other ways it was very, it was difficult. I had a relationship that wasn't great. But I think that in a way I've always used the kind of background of my life is being chaotic or not being particularly great because then I can use that to just go off into my work you know I think you recreate your past a lot you recreate situations that feel normal but just because it's the normalness of your past I spent five years in therapy and you know and people say why would you even do it for five years and you know and I was really I was one of those people say what would you why would you go talk to someone for five years? It's a nonsense. But now having done it and met a brilliant therapist, I've realised that the one thing she's really taught me to do is to be able to sit with my feelings and not react to them. Now I'm so much more able to cope with everything emotionally. It sounds to me like even though art comes with its own challenges and difficulties, and of course I think every... Well, there's no artist in the world who'd say it's very, very easy. However, it does sound like you 
the idea of it being therapy and being a place where you could work yourself out has always been the case for you. It's always been a sanctuary to some extent. But when you become an artist and you start selling things or you start being in the public domain, as you experienced when you went to and showed your film to those people at the university, you get judgment, you get criticism, you have people's ideas about what you're doing. So when those two met and you suddenly were presenting to people and maybe people give you notes that weren't necessarily always favourable, how did you cope with that? As an artist, and my work has evolved over a very long time. So at one point, when I was younger and I started doing my house, I kind of wanted people not to like it. It came from a very anarchic point, but rarely did. I can tell you that it takes weeks if to install this work. Yes. You're waking outside, and when I was doing all of the back wall and all of this, I've had three people three people say they didn't like what I was doing and have a go at me. Three. One that lived in the gated community. And it was like, well, you live in a gated community, go back to it. Someone on a little uh, mobility scooter that shouted at me as they were driving off, going, "That's you're doing the same to the back as you did to the front. It's awful. I said, what, you'd prefer Pebble Dash? And they went, yes. <laughs> and uh, one other person that shouted, you're not an artist, you going around telling everyone you're an artist. I'm like, well, I've never actually said that. But, yeah, I've had three people. And then that's not to say that lots of other people don't. Because if you go and look at my house on the Daily Mail, there's 200 comments saying that I should be literally shot. Have you read but, those comments? Yeah, they're oh, hysterical. Yeah. I was going to... You see, there's a gap at the top of my house and I was going to mosaic hated by the Daily Mail. Oh, that would be incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. just as a joke. Yeah. But, um, but the thing is, is I've had hundreds and hundreds of more people say they love it. Mm. So that type of thing doesn't really get to me. It's more of a worry now in the world because I do public artwork mm -hmm. and I get paid to do public artwork. I'm much more now worry about the place that we're in where you can't offend every, anyone. You have to second guess everything. You know, because the funny thing is, is I started my house as a reaction to being a community public artist. I wanted something that I could do uncensored. You know, and so I just thought, yeah, I want to do whatever I want. No one's going to tell me anything. And then over time, a lot of my work was anarchic. It was about death row. It was about political prisoners. It was about Black Panthers. It was used swear words. It used profanity. You know, so it was kept me always on the outside of things. And then somehow I managed to get almost into the establishment. Yeah. And now I make work that's, you know, which are places that will last forever, hopefully, in the towns or the places that they are. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
I have a question for you that comes probably from watching too many Hollywood films where people make art. But you say you're immersed in your art, right? I am imagining that you then, during those periods, wake up in the morning, maybe have like a cigarette and some coffee. You're wearing a T-shirt and tracksuit bottoms or whatever it might be. Go down, work all day, eat whatever you can find or whatever's nearby carry on working, go to bed, and that goes on for a while. Is that way too extreme? If I could, yeah. and when I have the opportunity to, I really do that. But I realistically, I've got three kids. I've had to get up and do a school run most of my life. Did that interfere then with your headspace and how you... Yeah, yeah. I, I really didn't like it yeah. very much. I think, really, I probably would benefit from routines, but I hate them. And also, I'm a night person. I know we have day and night people, and I am just a night person. It, I've managed to rail myself in now that I go to bed at 12 and I get up at 8. Okay. But my natural thing would be to go to bed at 4 or 5 and to sleep and just get up and work. Yeah. And I would be someone that would be happy to just sleep on the sofa next to where I'm working and get up and continue and not bath and not wash and not care about anything. Yeah. But I can't actually do that because I have children. One of the reasons I love going doing street art festivals is because, like, you get you go to someone like Aberdeen and you've got nine days to pull off the most amount of work that you can, yeah. and you have a team of people and they literally bring you your sandwiches, and you're literally, you know, you go to work at eight and you work and work until it gets dark and you exhaust yourself, and nothing is more exciting or enjoyable because you're with a group of other people doing the same thing, and when you get groups of people together who are really trying to make something happen, it's just the most amazing energy ever. But I also know I couldn't live in that world forever. I know artists that do, that go from street art festival to street art festival to street art festival. I mean, I think, oh, God, imagine if I could have done that when I was young. But knowing myself, I probably would have got into dark places if I haven't had my kids because I need my kids to, to ground me. I need my kids to make me have to, like get up every morning and make sure there's food in the house and I'm doing certain things. Yeah, it almost sounds like that was quite a fortunate thing then because there, there can be the thing where you have the artistic self or the creative self and then there's the bodily self or the person who needs, you know, routine, food, sleep and then you would like to just work all hours and keep it going and actually somewhere in the middle is where the human being lives, yeah. right? My therapist is always going on about balance. Yeah, well, my therapist too. So this is always about balance. But, you know, I know that my first child saved me from myself. I mean, I I had uh, pictures of myself cut up. I was doing, I was a chronic self-harmer for a period of time and I'd taken, got a photographer to take photos of me and then I'd put them into beautiful boxes and they had etched glass of reasons why people that I'd spoken to self-harmed. And remember, this is 96. 96 so this is no one ever talked about it till lady diana outed herself which is why i love her because she outed she us. made an enormous difference to that yes yeah, yeah yeah no one had health uh, i know because when people used to ask what was wrong with me my mum was able to say that she's the same as lady diana she's the same and it was fine you know, i've got a personality yeah. disorder yeah same as lady diana she normalized it. she made mm. something that people like me suffered in silence able yeah. to just 
I think people underplay how enormously brave that was of her because at the time it really was. Nowadays, if you come out with oh, well, no, pretty I much know, anything. No, but now it's almost like part of Instagram and growing yeah. up to have a bit of self-harm. But yeah. at that time, I yeah. didn't know anyone. I thought I, yeah. I had to seek out people. And the people that I used their quotes were actually in Ashford Mental Hospital. I mean, I literally had to fight. It was a very hard to find anyone to talk about it. So I had this work that had beautiful etched glass mm. with in this show and the other artist had a rotten fish stinking it out and we met and agreed to get married that next day ah how did that conversation come about i don't know we were both very nuts (laughs) you really fancy each other we were both quite nuts okay i I mean i i was due to go into the castle which was a therapeutic hospital for six months for treatment right and didn't really want to go and he'd just come out of six months in treatment okay and we literally met got drunk spent the night together said why don't we just get married two weeks later because that's the quickest you can get married i was married at hackney registrar with my dog and his dog as bridesmaids and um within a month i was pregnant with poppy wow and and you know it was in some sense, it was a disastrous. It was, you know, we should have been annulled because we were both completely insane. But in another way, I'm fairly certain it's kept James alive and well. It's his love of his child. Mm. I know of people who said also that ambition didn't kick in really until they had a child and then they thought, I have to do what's best for this human being. I don't being. think I had ambition at all. I think I'm very driven. I'm very driven and I'm I just, it might be my OCD-ness, I don't know what it is, but you ask anyone and I will, I can just go. I can relentlessly keep going. I, I have a lot of drive and I didn't really have ambition. What happened is I got involved with Death Row and I met someone and became their friends and I went from not being able to publicly speak at all because I mispronounced my words and I was very shy to someone who felt they had to go onto a stage to talk about their friend. So how did you get involved with Death Row? Because I picked up a big issue and it had human rights. Could you befriend someone on Death Row? And I thought, yeah, I could. So I just applied and they hooked me up with Lewis and I became a pen pal. That just, that whole thing just became something that was the thing that probably made me a craftivist or an activist. Because I think activism involves really a passion. You know, I was left-leaning, I had left-leaning politics, but, you know, I'm a white woman in Chiswick. I haven't got that much to kick against, really, other than the fact my dad didn't give me a house. I mean, it's a bit of a (laughs) first-class problem. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, but... Befriending someone on death row and him becoming my best friend for five years and then realising the state was going to murder him for something that he clearly hadn't done, I suddenly was drawn into this whole other world. And so I became a voice for that. And and in a sense, that's why my favourite quote is, uh, the quickest way to happiness is to find a cause greater than yourself. Because pre that, I would always be very locked into my own headspace and... Um, I have that repetitive thought problem, Mm -hmm. you know, unless I quieten it down with telly or music or something, I have negative thoughts all the time. Are they all negative? I just think it's constant. It took me a long time to realise through therapy that I was in control of what I thought. Right. And the words you use to yourself, that was a big thing for me, that you can choose what you say to yourself. Yeah, don't believe everything you think. (laughs) Quite, yeah. You know, it took me... It it seems... stupid to to other people but it took me a long time to realize I don't have to listen to depressing music because I feel depressed yeah yeah you know that I could get up go and walk the dog and listen to disco Mm. I could control my you know I had some control over that 
But now you're in what sounds to me like a very centred place. Tell me about menopause. I think I went into the menopause. I think when my mother died, I always felt I'd aged about 10 years. I think that and splitting up with the father of my two kids, not the one I'd married as a stranger, yeah. but the next one. Yeah, um, so you've got three kids in total. Yeah. yeah. And so I split up with him. It was very traumatic and toxic. And I think that pushed me into the menopause. I may have been pre-menopausal before and not known it, but suddenly I went into the menopause. I literally, from about, I think, 50, 51, maybe, I just literally, it, you know, I just didn't have a period. Yeah. And I never had one for a year and a half until my oldest daughter phoned me up from America to say she was getting on a plane and thought she had mumps. And I thought, oh, no, she's going to give mumps to everyone on the plane. It's going to be a nightmare. And I literally uh, had a period. Right. Out of stress, I think. And funnily enough, I know two women who, when they were told their daughters had died, both had periods, having not had them for two years. Because I think, literally, I do think we're kind of connected in the umbilical cord. I, I, I understand that you're saying that that sounds like a weird um, concept, but I also think the same. I feel like I feel like owning that biology means that you're so connected to something in a strange but way. But it is, because my yeah. mum always thought she was psychic with me. Yeah. And her... And I thought when my mum died, it felt like yeah. I'd, something yeah. had been cut, severed. And I've, you know, I don't really believe in all that stuff. I kind of think it, think, and then strange things happen, like mm. literally having a period and mm. not having one for a year and a half because yeah. I was traumatised by something with my daughter. But I was really lucky because I did, I think nearly all the women I know go through a couple of years where they have real low self-confidence. They feel really... People that normally were confident would be like, I just can't make a decision. I've just, you know, it, you. I think it can be really quite emotionally yeah. disturbing. And I had all the hot sweats and things. But you know what? I read online about a Lady Plus, which is a purple magnet that you can put and you attach in your pants. Oh. It's like 49 quid. They used yeah. to sell them in boots, but they're not allowed under the Trade Act to advertise them, apparently. And it's a bit like the magnet people say you put around your wrist for arthritis. Yeah. So. I put one and I never had a hot flush. And I don't know if it's mind over matter. Yeah. Because I'm nuts and just believe it because I do believe in the power of the mind. Oh, but, but the placebo effect is like a well-proven no, thing. It's great. So yeah. I just tell yeah. everyone I put a magnet down my pants. So, yeah, yeah I kind of yeah. sailed through it. I didn't have that much of a, a problem. A problem, yeah. No, and I think because I'd been in a process, if you think about it, I'd been in a process where I'd gone into AA, I'd got myself off class A's, I'd sorted myself out, I'd been in therapy. So it was part of a whole process. And and because I'd come from a position of self-hate and all of these things and through therapy had learnt self-love, yeah. which for me, I'd always thought, what do people mean when they say, no one will love you till you love yourself? It's like, what the f what does that mean? Yeah. How do you love yourself? I, I thought as a concept, it's ridiculous. Yeah. But discovered in therapy, it meant taking care of yourself. Yes. It meant just eating well, sleeping well, giving yourself time to even go into therapy, allowing yourself those few hours to say, I'll talk about this and try and sort things out. So I'd all gone through the long process of that. And so the tail end of that was that we went into a lockdown and... I think that when I went into the lockdown, 
part of me, as we first went into it, I put myself and my kids into a lockdown two weeks before anyone else because I've been watching all that porn, yeah. you know, all the violent, all the, the death. And terrible, yeah. I'd literally gone into When the Wind Blows and bought potato plants and I'd bought a dehydrator and thought I was going to freeze dry things sure. and survive with the kids. And I bought about seven kilos of rice. Yes, we I all did. I still haven't eaten them. We it's, all did. Yeah. And so I went into a very paranoid, like, there's just me and the kids. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. And then after a couple of weeks, I realised I couldn't live in that state of fear, so I turned off all the social media. But then I had a dog, and then I'd be walking the dog twice a day, and I and I took up silent disco. I'd go dancing on my own at night when it was dark. And do you know what? Over that first six months of the lockdown, I kind of realised that I was happy. I realised that it didn't matter if I never met anyone. I didn't realise what happened. I was actually relatively happy, and I liked myself. And so that was kind of a revelation to me. I've got great friends. I have a great job. I have a house. Actually, I'm really happy just dancing around in the park to 70s disco. Finding this way of looking after yourself, I wondered what your day looks like now on that subject, sort of what you do. I noticed, are you wearing a Fitbit? Yes, I yeah. do. Okay. I do wear a Fitbit. So I do. I do. I'll tell you the things I do. I, yes, I, tell I, me what you do. The one thing I do do is I pluck my beard. Because the one thing I realised, the most hideous <laughs> thing after menopause is the growth of yeah. hair. Yeah. You know, because I could always have my feminist principles and say, I don't, I don't shave anything. Bring back pubes and, yeah. you know. But the beard is the one thing that was scary. And so that the one thing I do do is like I sit there at night and if I can feel them like bristles, it's like they've got to go. Yeah, but there's something thrilling about that too, in a way. Oh, I don't know. I think it's, I always used to think, I did used to think like everyone else, I'd look at old ladies and it's the archetypal witch with the mole and the hairs. And I would look at old people and think, why don't you get rid of those hairs? Because that is just horrible. <laughs> yeah. But now I realise it's because by the time you've got hair, you're blind. Yeah. So unless you've got glasses on, you can't even see them. You can only feel them. You have to go there feeling to see where your beard is yeah. and, and remove it. Yeah. So I do do that. Mm. But as a rule, that's it. In fact, honestly, my friends will tell you that I only have to wash and blow dry my hair. Mm-hmm. And people will say, have you had your hair cut? And but it's like, I say that your hair, no. do you colour your hair? Well, it was coloured, but I haven't had it coloured since I've really been in nice a lockdown. It looks it's, really nice. it's half, I think the... I can't really quite tell. The trouble is, I'm not even sure if I've gone white or grey or what's happening. But it's nice. It's I haven't lovely. actually blonde yeah. my. I haven't done anything to my hair since we were in a in a lockdown. Mm-hmm. The one thing my daughter introduced, my oldest daughter introduced me to just before we went into the lockdown, mm-hmm. was having my eyebrows done, mm-hmm. which I found very bizarre because I find. You know, when you change yourself, it's really hard to look at yourself. And, and she made me go do it, and funnily enough, just before I met my partner. But, yeah, she went and I got my eyebrows and my eyelashes done. Yeah. Which I find very strange to have What people. did you get done to your eyelashes? Cut. I just had them dyed, but yeah. it didn't make any difference because I've barely got any. But um, my eyebrows, yeah, I did like that because yeah. they're very fair and I did like it because you don't have to do anything. It just means you've got a slightly better look when you wake up. Yeah, yeah. Because for me, it's all about time. Yeah. You know, if I didn't... I feel really under pressure all the time because I'm not sure ever if I'm going to finish the job I'm doing. Mm. So the idea that I would stop and get ready for that is yeah. just a no-no. Yeah. If I'm going out, I will try to make an effort. So you said today that you've put makeup on. I wondered what you'd put on. And also, are you someone who likes perfume? That's well, yes. No, I do. I have a lure. I've always had a lure. Yeah. 
I've I'm I'm one of these people that if I like something, that's it. I just have the same. I never deviate. Right. So I discovered I like a lure, and I, every time I go abroad, I will normally get one. But because we've been in, in a airport. lockdown, yeah. my partner got me one for Christmas this year. Yeah. But I kind of find something I like, and then I stick to it. Yeah. And then I did actually get into beauty pie. Do you remember mm-hmm, those bo- mm-hmm. just before we went into lockdown? I was like, because things come up on my it's feed. Good. Beauty pie is good. Yeah. Yes. Well, I can't tell. That's yeah. the thing. I got involved in it and then I ended up with packages of it. And now my daughter just goes, What have you got left of your beauty pie? And I right. now, because I just didn't use it. Okay. I like the idea of it. Well, what about things like, like, I'm just like body moisturizers, body washes? Like, do you get yeah, excited use, by any of that? No, I use that one pound that's mint and tea tree. I like that one though. Because original if you source, like it, it gives that's it, great. Yeah, that's, yeah, it makes I you always feel really awake. Yes, yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's about it. Everything to do with shampoo, I literally get whatever's on special at okay. Sainsbury's. I love that though. It's quite freeing, the idea of that for me. I get very into like the excitement of every single element, but the idea that. Yeah, Shall I mean, I like going, literally like once in the lockdown, me and La- me and Roxy put face packs on and we stuck those things on your feet where all your skin falls off. I do like that. How did you feel about that? I like that because I, I like, like picking all my, I like, like picking it. my skin. Interesting. I'm going to finish by asking you the three questions I ask all my guests. First one is, what would you consider to be your greatest triumph, either career or personal? Uh, just A, to be alive. I feel like I'm a real you know I'm a survivor of lots of things but yeah my greatest triumph has to be my kids I don't want to take the credit for it but I feel like yeah my three kids have turned out really really okay would you give any advice to your younger self if I had to say one piece of advice to young you what would it be oh I'd say that I'd say that youth is wasted on the young, isn't it? It's that classic thing you can't. But, you know, if I could, I would just want to tell myself as a young person that you are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Everyone, when they're young, is beautiful because life in front of you is beautiful. You know, you can't... As you came in, you might have seen, I've got all these photos of, like, all of the past. And I remember when every one of those was taken and not liking myself and looking at those photos. And now, whenever you look back... You go, oh, my God, I was beautiful. Of course I was beautiful. We're all beautiful. You know, what was I thinking? The same thing. You know, yeah. and it's like, yeah. that was one of the things I thought going into the menopause is I'm just, I'm not going to hate myself anymore. It'd be the next thing to hate myself about because I'm now, you know, I'm invisible. I'm this. And I thought, no, I've done that my whole life. I don't believe that. So, you know, you'd want to try and just tell your younger self, you know, that we're all beautiful. Three people, dead or alive, to come over for dinner. Who are they? Nikki Dussafal, who's an artist who okay. did the magical gardens, and I think I've tread a, a life like her. And Che Guevara, just have something hot to look at. He's very hot, yeah. I've always had a bit of a thing about him. Yeah, completely get that. Right, good answer. Good dinner party. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thanks for inviting us. Thanks very much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave a comment and subscribe and there'll be a new episode out next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 